and welcome to the Future Cities Podcast, the show where we talk about making cities more resilient. Uh, and as you can probably tell from that funky intro, uh, I have just discovered the music loops that come with GarageBand, and I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, this discovery has just uh, shocked the production quality of the show up by like a thousand percent, and our transitions are going to be way more fun. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm your host, Stephen Elser, and in this month's episode, uh, we take a more pragmatic approach to the topic as we discuss how to finance urban resilience projects. Uh, now, this episode will be a little bit different than most of our episodes in that the content was not originally meant for a podcast. Uh, in this episode, we're bringing you snippets from the Eurex SRN Innovation Plaza series. Uh, and Innovation Plaza is a series of online seminars where we ask critical questions about what has to change in how cities approach urban resilience to climate change. Uh, so this is just an edited-down version of one chapter of that series that focuses on the important issue of financing urban resilience projects. Uh, now, since the seminar is distributed online and because uh, it's been heavily edited down, there are some places where the sound cuts off or there are more abrupt edits. So just keep that in mind as you're listening. It's mostly fine, uh, so don't worry about it too much. Uh, our special guests for this episode are Shalini Vajhala and Stacy Swan, two really incredible women with strong backgrounds in finance with respect to resilience and climate change. Uh, and we're so, so lucky to have them on the show. Uh, and the discussion is moderated by Joyce Coffey, the founder and president of Climate Resilience Consulting. Uh, now, over to Matt Fagan to introduce this particular Innovation Plaza webinar. Welcome to uh, this Innovation Plaza on financing Um I'm really uh, excited that everybody's here, and welcome you all to the room. I, uh, in conversation with a whole bunch of folks in the Urban Resilience to Extreme Sustainability Research Network wanted to open these kinds of innovation plazas, in other words, spaces where we can have um, greater discussions across the network for network-wide learning, for network-wide connectivity, um, and to also bring in some experts from outside the network who can um, uh, give us additional insights into a whole bunch of key topics. And the topics for innovation plazas are completely wide open, so any of you uh, would be welcome to propose a topic, and um, I can help co-plan uh, that, that session with you. The main thrust behind the Innovation Plaza is that uh, we focus primarily on, on dialogue and questions. And the central question for all of the Innovation Plazas is this, this core one, uh, which is, you know, what needs to change and how we're approaching urban resilience? And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that question, specifically from the angle of finance. And um, I'm not going to take up any more time uh, on, on context here, but I'm going to hand it over to, to Joyce Coffey, who's going to be our moderator for this Innovation Plaza, and, and Joyce, you can uh, take it away from there. Great. Well, hello, everyone. So nice to see some of you and hear others on the phone. 
Um, it's really a great pleasure, first of all, to say thank you to Matthew for putting this together. I'm really thrilled with the Innovation um, Plaza concept, and I feel like it's brought a lot of fresh ideas to UREX at a crucial time in our transformation, um, so I appreciate it very much. One thing that um, I really found is that I have always had a ton of questions that I might have been a little bit afraid to ask about things to do with sustainable finance, and uh, Shalini and Stacy have been absolutely um, uh, so great, generous with very easy answers to my questions, and it's made my work life much richer, so I hope that that's true for you, too. Shalini is the founder and CEO of Refocus Partners and has uh, created quite a, a force to be reckoned with in the design and finance realm, um, and she focuses specifically on resilience. Uh, you'll hear from her that a lot of her work is truly grounded in the kinds of things that we're grappling with, too, as part of UREX. Um, she continues to be a senior fellow with Brookings, and she's, um, as, as well as being the founder of, C of uh, Refocus, has created the Atlas Marketplace, which I think the infrastructure, or I know Twig used a little bit, um, to determine uh, some sort of database around infrastructure. And um, she got some real mojo in her career when she was with the US EPA as a special rep um, leading the US-Brazil Joint Initiative on Urban Sustainability. So I'm really pleased to have you here today, Shalini. Thank you so much. Um, Stacey Swan is the founder and CEO of Climate Finance Advisors, uh, which is a firm that translates climate finance policy into practical action. It's also a B Corp, um, and I know her because she's a part of a group called the Global Adaptation Resilience Investment Work Group and has been really, uh, really pivotal there in terms of helping to create some materials that I've learned a great deal from. Um, she came most recently from the U.S. Department of Treasury, and she's also been very active um, in her profession with the IFC and their blended finance unit, which... Um, um, helps with allocations to multilateral and bilateral climate funds, so has a very global perspective. And we'll hear more about blended finance from the perspective of the U.S. today, too. She's on the board of the Montgomery County Green Bank. And um, this is, you may know, the first county-level green bank in the U.S., so it's really breaking lots of new ground and hopefully um, creating a template that many other regions can follow. Um, so it's really my pleasure to see both of you here today. Thank you so much. So without further ado, um, let me turn it over to Stacy. So thank you, Joyce. Thank you, Matthew, um, for having me. And I'm um, really happy to, to be here today to talk a little bit about blended finance for resilience. Um, I come at this from the perspective of um, having run a, a fund in, inside ISC and, and having been a banker in that sense. Um, and so there's there's two kinds of things that I think about when I address climate risk and resilience. One is, of course, how much value is at risk. Um, that's really important. But more importantly, and this will get kind of lead into the discussion about blended finance, how can we finance things differently? Um, really, how can we do this in a way that is um, building in the resilience and increasing the sustainability and increasing the ability for us to kind of withstand some of these acute impacts, but also the chronic impacts um, that might happen as climate change? Really, if you think about it, the role and function of having some public money uh, to catalyze something that the markets aren't financing in the first place really is to take on risk. At this point in time, uh, private finance is really not moving fast enough. Usually the markets are at least kind of conceptually much more nimble when it comes to understanding risk and responding. But in this particular case, um, it really isn't. It's really that the financial markets and financial actors are really not thinking about climate change. There's all kinds of reasons for this. One is there's misplaced incentives within banks and financiers 
Of course, um, there's short-termism. Um, a lot of investors are thinking only about the investment they're making and the time horizon for that, not necessarily the asset life. Of course, city managers need to think about the asset life, but those, those two kind of um, incentives are not really matched up when it comes to financing. Um, but if you put those two things aside, which are somewhat of a pessimistic view, um, if you assume that the folks who are engaged in building and resilience at the city level and the bankers who fund those, those projects are all kind of focused on the right outcomes, there's still a significant lack of information. So even those who are incentivized don't have the right information to make the right, right investment decisions, let alone the right design decisions. And this, some, this goes back to this, the issue of the kind of design thresholds needing to be um, adjusted to incorporate some of the impacts that we're going to see in the future. Stacy, that was fantastic. And turn now to um, Shalini. Well, thanks so much, Joyce, for inviting me here. It's always a pleasure to speak after Stacy because she um, can lay out the entire landscape for all resilience finance, which lets me focus on the bottom up from project finance. So I'm going to be talking today about what resilience finance actually looks like on the ground and give you an example of a few infrastructure projects that our team has worked with cities to put together. And then also describe a new financial mechanism that we've developed um, largely because we realized our projects were creating value that was benefiting uh, that was benefiting the private sector and not being turned back around in the public interest. And as Joyce mentioned, I was a former political appointee in the Obama administration. And what I found was that in my job, um, when you had initiatives where success is something that doesn't happen, the first year you're applauded, the second year your budget is cut, and the third year you lose your job. So I want to start by anchoring us to the fact that resilient infrastructure isn't just about withstanding storms and disasters. It's about dealing with things like deferred maintenance, and making sure the systems that we have are sturdy for the futures that we're headed for. In an 18-month pre-development process to figure out if we could design resilient infrastructure systems at the $100 million scale or above and set these cities on a clear path to finance. You depend on a pipeline of projects to actually finance and create resilience benefits. And one thing we realized in the pipeline that we were building working with cities directly was that when our projects were successfully going to construction, we were reducing risks for a huge number of people. So Miami Beach's seawall upgrades could protect not just Miami Beach, but also reduce storm surge risk in Miami. And there isn't a way to really think about how to capture that money at the project finance level, right? Because you're, you're off the site you're creating benefits, for example, for the hospital in Hoboken or the water utility in Hoboken that's experiencing less flooding or lower operating costs. So what we started doing is thinking about what are the ways that we could capture the benefits of these projects to actually help create a virtuous cycle of financing risk reductions. So we tend to ask three big questions to all of our cities. We rarely talk about climate change, and we rarely talk about innovative finance. In almost every conversation we have with a city that's looking for new resilience solutions and looking for new money, we ask them, where are you losing money now? Not what impacts could you avoid in the future. If you start with where a city is losing money now, and the deep, dark, dirty secret is they all are losing money, and they all are facing down budgets where they're likely to lose more money in areas at risk in future. If you start there, it creates a much more uh, 
safe political space for city leaders, for public officials to say, if you can help me fix this problem, then we don't need to talk about climate change and we'll end up safer in the future. The other question we ask is, where are we creating value in another sector? How does an upgrade in a water utility prevent a transit authority from flooding? And can the transit authority help pay for the water upgrade if the utility is short of money? And finally, as the example from Hoboken, we try to smash together as many types and colors of money as possible into projects, whether that's innovation and demonstration parks or things like a bathtub built into a parking garage. Awesome. Wow. Lots of clapping. Um, so thank you both so much. And I think um, we have, you know, almost 10 minutes for questions. One of the things that people on this call were worried about is the when you bring in the private investor, um, it might perhaps skew the um, reason for a project going forward. So should we have any concerns about catering to the private investor when it comes to public infrastructure resilience? The best starting point is figuring out how you can tweak that project to bring in revenues or to be very, very clear about what the avoided losses or savings are today so that it looks as familiar to an investor as possible. This shouldn't be about designing a project first and chasing money after. What we tell folks is projects have to pay for themselves. That is the simplest and most important thing when it comes to resilience. And they can pay for themselves with public money. They can pay for themselves with private money. But you have to think about that up front in the design. Where it gets tricky is when you have to decide whether to counsel a city to pursue public funding, private funding, or a combination and where that balance is. So in the case of Hoboken, the project I presented, that was an $85 million project. We set it up so that it could have been fully financed as a private concession with the parking garage. And it ended up being that even with a really cheap cost of capital um, in the private sector, public money was still cheaper. And so that's why we helped the city get a loan through the New Jersey Environmental Infrastructure Trust. I think what you will find in most of these projects is the pipeline is so thin that when a project is done successfully, there will be cheap public money available before you will ever get to the private money because there isn't such a large flood, pardon the term, of these projects. So I think we worry less about investor influence. Um, I can tell you from the perspective of working on resilience bonds, we have investors queued up and our concern is about financial integrity for the communities served and the design of the mechanism. There's no shortage of interest in investment in this space. Investors aren't driving our work at all. So I'll hand it over to Stacey since she can speak far more knowledgeably about that. From a very pragmatic perspective, we just don't have enough public dollars to invest in the resilience that we need, either in infrastructure or kind of other parts of the economy. Um, and so, you know, I do think that to the extent that the investment costs are going to be significant, we really do need to take the public and somehow leverage private with it. Um, there's a number that's, that's thrown around often um, that says um, we need $90 trillion of low-carbon climate-resilient infrastructure around the world between now and 2030. And that's a T, not a B, and that's a lot. Um, and there aren't enough kind of billions of public dollars to kind of get there. Um, and even when there are billions of public dollars, it's, got, it's you know, um, 
those public dollars have to be spread across a number of different things like education and health and, you know, other things. If you're building a toll road and charging 20 people to drive on the toll road, you may not get a lot of people driving on the toll road except the kind of people who can bear those costs. Um, and that you really do need to, when you're putting that, those kinds of projects together, you really do need to think about the pricing for um, the consumers and the users. That, I would agree, is something that needs to be managed very carefully and probably not always left to um, be a function of the returns private investors need. Where, where do we start? So we have nine cities. They each have, let's say, a project, or they will in the coming year that they want to move forward with. Many of them do not have special facilities that would blend finance, but they do have active you know, um, chief sustainability officers along with their big budget offices, and they have relationships with banks. Um, and, of course, as Shawnee pointed out, they probably have access more and more to fantastic data from RMS and others. So what would you suggest as your next step? Putting a little green bank or resilience bank together will take, you know, six, nine, 12 months. Um, uh, municipalities are one of the largest um, uh, locuses of bond raising. And so um, having cities and municipalities really take up the mantle of resilience bonds would be pretty interesting um, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. I certainly don't kind of promote the blended finance approach above all else. I think it's one tool in the toolbox, but if a city needs to raise money in addition to the budget they have because their funds are limited, particularly for infrastructure, raising money through a bond is actually interesting. What should we be doing federally or nationally to uh, encourage and increase the amount of finance for resilience? I, I have a bee in my bonnet about um, the need to quantify and assess climate risk in finance. And um, at one point, there were executive orders for federal funding to do that. Um, any U.S. dollar that was channeled through U.S. agencies domestically or internationally needed to have some quantification of climate risk. I don't think there's no perfect quantification of climate risk today, but particularly on the physical side, it's early days, it's difficult, it's hard. Which hazard do you look at? How do you look at the time frames? You know, it's, it's very, it's very early days, but um, I've also been in, very impressed at how something like the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which itself is something that is in the, in the life cycle of how you should be thinking about risk from a financial perspective, way down the road, you don't disclose something you haven't assessed and managed, um, quantified, assessed, and managed. So thinking about how you disclose is kind of very much 10 steps removed. But it has raised so much awareness around the issue of climate risk. And if you had similar requirements to quantify, to begin to quantify what climate risk is, and start talking about it on timescales that are meaningful, I think you're going to find a lot of information and feedback loops, and we're going to start learning from each other about something that everybody is experiencing, but nobody knows how to quantify and articulate right now. Um, so we can, we can, That's fantastic. We're going to stay yeah. with that one. It's like just okay. awesome information on overload. <laughs> so, Shalini, can we go for you? What's your one thing the Fed should change? I'm going to give three. Um, the first is we should fix perverse incentives. And the one I'll flag that we've been working on is FEMA had um, put forward a proposal for a new type of disaster deductible. 
-hmm. And we think this has a lot of potential. So you can see what our public comment was and some of the work that we've been doing behind the scenes on our website. I think this resembles the equivalent of rolling back fossil fuel subsidies on the mitigation side when we look for fixing perverse incentives on the adaptation side. It's what's driving us to build in floodplains. The second thing is I think we should really look at new standards and compliance requirements in wonky areas like the Department of Transportation, where it's not just about making a road more resilient to a storm, so the road is the last thing left standing. It's about making sure the road gets credit for serving as a berm and protecting the community behind it. And the third thing is data, 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 data. Um, federal governments are the only ones often that are positioned to do the kind of longitudinal data collection required for assessing long-term benefits and developing the equivalent of what the insurance industry does in actuarial assessments, but also forward-looking modeling. So I would say all three of those things, and I love the question. So thank you. Awesome. You guys are so wonderful. Thank you so much. And thanks to our colleagues who've been so patient. And um, we are really grateful that you both shared um, your insights here, but especially that you were out there in the world making the change that you make every day. It is pivotal and transformative, and we are all the better for it. So here's to you for your important work and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, everyone. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, thank you again to our special guests for all of their insights. If you liked what you heard, send us an email at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com uh, so we can send you the link to the entire one-and-a-half-hour webinar uh, as well as the slideshow presentation. Uh, we will hopefully be able to put those up on the Eurex website soon as well, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, also, if you have any further questions you'd like to see explored in a follow-up podcast uh, on any aspect of what you've heard, uh, please get in touch with us by email or reach out to us on Twitter at FutureCitiesPod. Um, also, please rate, subscribe, and leave comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts uh, to help other people find the show. All right, that's it for now. Uh, I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>